Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. Before I introduce my guest, I wanted to let you know that I have a book. It's a novel called Lump, and it's published by the Rare Machines imprint at Dundurn Press. It's my third novel. I've read it, and it's good. If you'd rather not take my word for it, the Toronto Star has called Lump one of the must-read, hands-down best books of 2023 so far. You can find out more about Lump at nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Evan Monday. Evan is the author and illustrator of the Silver Birch shortlisted Dead Kid Detective Agency series, the fourth and most recent volume of which, Connect the Scots, was published by ECW Press in 2018. Monday currently works as the publicity manager for children's books at Penguin Random House Canada. In its review of Connect the Scots, the School Library Journal wrote that fans of the series will be thrilled with another spectral mystery glinting with subtle mirth. Speaking of subtle mirth, Evan and I talk about the days when he was very frequently spotted at Toronto book events, and why those days are mostly over. Spoiler, it's age and kids. It's almost always age and kids. We talk about the as-yet-unpublished fifth installment of the Dead Kid Detective Agency series, and why it is as-yet-unpublished, and why being a full-time writer simply does not fit Evan's guilt-ridden personality. Many years ago, in a, in a former life, I used to work at Quill Inquire magazine. And one of the things I had to do there was there was a party page where they would have photos from different like book launches, readings, festivals, whatever it was. And because I was the review editor and considered not, not as essential as other people, part of my job was to go through the photos pick which ones that looked fun and then caption them. And I tried to give them like slightly yeah. snippy, snarky, fun captions, you know, a la whatever spy magazine or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I remember there was a point where I was actually told by the former editor there, we can't keep running photos of Evan Monday. <laughs> <laughs> because every week, every month, whatever it was, there would be inevitably a photo with you at some event in, in the Toronto area, whatever it was. And I was, I will admit I was biased towards picking those because you would always be very well-dressed, especially relative to many of the people at those events, <laughs> who, you know? Yeah. I mean, and I, 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 I include myself in the category of like, I would not make the cut of those, <laughs> of those photos. Um, this, that you were sort of not in the like gray sport coat, and you know bland shirt uh category what it spoke to though was and oh, by the way there was no hostility behind that it was just a sense of like an editorial decision of like yeah. we can't always have evan in these need some variety yeah we need a little variety but what it spoke to was this sense that you were very much like a book guy yeah i mean i feel like yeah that is very much part of my past i feel like in my 20s and even 
I would say most of my 30s, I spent a lot of evenings at book events. And I would say they were largely kind of smaller and medium-sized Canadian publisher events. Um, I mean, for part of that time, I was working as a publicist at Coach House Books. And I don't know if it originated. I mean, I think originally I was just like, oh, I need to meet other people in this world, in this community. I need to be part of this community more and started going to more book events. But then I think it quickly became like, I mean, Coach House, when I was there, we did a lot of book events. Some might say yeah. too many book events. <laughs> yeah. Um, but my, I mean, I feel like my philosophy was like, I can't expect people to come to our launches and our readings and book events if we're not going to theirs. So I was like, I tried to make it out to as many, I mean, within reason, as many book events as possible. And, you know, after a while, those people become your friends, they become your uh, associates, your community. So it's less, uh, I mean, I feel like it's, I'm making it sound a little mercenary, um, but I feel <laughs> like also it just became like, that was your, that was your uh, social group. That was your social network uh, at a certain point, like, um, and I've taken a step back from that. I mean, partially as I work as a publicist in kids books these days, and a lot of the kids books events are, I mean, understandably, they're not in bars at nine at night. They're right. they more <laughs> like weekend afternoons and that kind of thing uh, during the day. So it's partially that, but also, I mean, I'm older. I have, I have a kid myself. I've moved like fairly far east in the city. So it's harder to get to some of those downtown events for me these days. But yeah, I know, like, I felt like, yeah, there were certain times here where I was out three or four nights a week at one book event or another, sometimes doing more than one a night. Uh, if I could, like, get on the, you know, streetcar and make it between two two venues. And um, yeah, I think it was like half. That was just what my, that was what for me socializing was. That was what I did in evenings for the most part. And then, yeah, also I felt like it was very much, you have to sort of like, give if you're going to get so like if you want people to come to your book events you should show up at one I mean as many as you can um and for the most part I was really interested in the books and authors that that I was seeing too I mean not always but there are always some obligations but um there's something like a lot of times that's like oh, I'm really keen about checking this book out and meeting this author there was a was there also a sense because in a previous life to that previous life I referenced, I also worked in bars and restaurants mm -hmm. and I knew a lot of people who had been, you know, working at a bar for, for years and years. And when they would have a night off, they would kind of drift into the bar and sit at the <laughs> bar and be a patron, almost like they had lost all sense of like, there is an external world. And it, it took until they would actually like leave that job, go get like an office job and, rebuild their social skills was there also that sense of like like you said this is my now my social world and I'm kind of in that bubble all the time yeah I mean I feel like that was part of it like I at a certain point I kind of looked around I'm like oh I don't know a lot of I don't have a lot of friends who are not working in books or you know for for a, in terms of a larger scope like you know cultural industries um those those friends are like pretty rare and most of them kind of date back before my work life right like they're from mm. high school or, or university or things like that so there's an element of that too where you're just like but also I'm kind of like I don't know where adults make friends outside of work circles I mean there are exceptions like if you go to a gym or if you're involved in recreational sports or things like that 
um, you meet people through that or now that I'm a parent, you sort of make friends with like, you know, the, the parents of the kids that you find, you know, least objectionable and that kind of thing. Yeah, but yeah, that's crucial. Uh, you know, like, oh, this person, I don't know if I would choose this guy as my friend normally, but, you know, out of the parents, they seem pretty cool. Like a lot of that stuff. But I think before that point, it was just like, well, I meet people through work. And when you're working at a press that has, you know, four staff members, you're like, well, I maybe should go <laughs> make some other work <laughs> friends who are not, you know, directly in this very small office. Um, so I think that was part of it too. And it was, I don't know, like, I think it was maybe a bit strange and it's obviously a strange world to inhabit, especially the world of like, you know, uh, I, I worked at Coaches for a long time and I'm not super into poetry, like on my own. And I think they're known for that. And I kind of got into it working there, but it's still not something that I read a lot of recreationally. Um, so I feel like that was a bit strange, but also I feel like, I don't know, I feel like there are also a lot of people who are not, you know, out four nights a week doing sort of cultural events. So that was nice too. Yeah. And I, I should, I should say, I didn't mean any of that critically or, no. or, or even to suggest that you were the only one there. There were in that era that I was kind of doing it a little bit too professionally. There were a lot of people where, for uh, sure. And 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 honestly, there were people who were five or six nights a week. It's felt like they were they were out. Um yeah, but they weren't wearing ties. Yeah. But they weren't wearing really cool ties. So they didn't make the <laughs> cut. That was just that was just the rule. <laughs> you were um you were a book or at least a creative person before you landed at Coach House, before you were doing any of this, before any of that kind of mercenary instinct came in. <laughs> But it was mostly through like comic books and drawing. I feel like your first published works, is this correct? Were were more on the drawing side than and illustrating yeah. side than than actual writing. Yeah, absolutely. Like I I mean, I've always drawn comic books. I've always been very much into comic books. And I think I would say even more so than other kind of media. Um people who read a lot of comics always like try to make their own comic books. I feel like a lot of people watch movies, but it's like a very limited subset of people who are like, I'm going to try to make my own movie. Cause that seems like a large undertaking, but I feel like with comics, I feel like a fair number of people who are really into comics are like, I'm going to try one. Um, so, I mean, that was me through much of my childhood. Like my brother and I were always making comics to try to impress each other. You know, I started doing it a bit more professionally as I got into high school I, I always tell a story like when I was in middle school, I had a friend named Greg and we both really liked making comics and we somehow convinced our principal that we should be able to take the comics we wrote and drew, um, use the school photocopier to like print up large amounts of them and staple them. And then we just stole them a couple of days in the school cafeteria. <laughs> and that was kind of my first experience of like self-publishing and, and getting people who are not you know, members of my direct family reading and like responding to what I had written and drawn. And that's sort of like where it really kind of took off for me. So I did a lot of that in high school, in university, I did like comic strips for the university paper um, and did sort of my own self-published comics that I would sell at, you know, Toronto comic conventions and small press expos and things like that. And so I always kind of did that. Um, but for me, it was like, I think at a certain point I realized, A, I don't think I'm at the level 
where I can make, I think like people will buy these comics and read these comics and enjoy them, but I don't think I'm ever going to be at the point where like somebody's going to hire me to draw or write, you know, Batman or X-Men or anything like that. I feel like that was kind of a pipe dream. So I feel like you know, I have to do something that actually pays rent so I can, I can continue to live and things like that. So I started, um, actually after university did a course in book and magazine publishing and sort of started working in books and and magazines ever since then. And kind of for a long time was doing both kind of like, you know, working in books and then at night started working on my own comic stuff. Um, and still like kind of going to, um, you know, comic conventions and and places like that and selling the books um, to people and making friends in that comic. We're like a Toronto sort of indie comics world too. I'm still friends with a lot and some have stopped doing it entirely and a couple of them have, are now like doing stuff for Marvel. So it's kind of really interesting to see, you know, that group and all the, the way the various paths that their lives have taken. Um, and yeah, at a certain point, it kind of just morphed into less comics because I still I don't really do I still read a lot of comics but I don't draw write comics uh, anymore and it kind of morphed into like doing books which are um in some ways easier because you don't have to draw as much or anything if you don't want to draw anything I like to draw stuff so my books tend to be illustrated but um obviously it's a little bit different um because you're you have to write everything you can't just draw uh, stuff so it's sort of morphed into doing books for young readers rather than you know self-published comics uh one of my goals um for this podcast is to make it as self-referential as possible <laughs> and to do as many callbacks to other episodes as i can yeah one conversation i had recently was with the um with joe ullman i feel and... like a comics legend in hamilton right absolutely yeah I mean, in Canada generally, but based in Hamilton. But based in Hamilton, yes. Yeah. (laughs) I think comics legend in Hamilton sounds so, like, dismissive. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah. But one thing we talked about was this idea that when you think about encouraging people to express themselves creatively, there's always this default to writing. Or you hop the fence and it's like paint. Why has there not been this sense that actually writing comics is the most obvious way for people to express themselves creatively who are who don't maybe have yeah the highest skills on either side of that fence but you can marry them draw something draw a crude cartoon yeah yeah to be fair i think a lot of it is just like people feeling they can't draw like i feel like mm-hmm. i encounter it all the time i do i do less of it now but i used to do a lot of sort of workshops you know, with the Toronto Public Library and places and schools where it's like, make your own comic workshop with kids. And like so many kids are just so fearful of drawing something wrong, or they just feel like I can't do it. And like, Mm -hmm. part of that part of those workshops is always like, it doesn't have to look like, I don't know, like Neil Adam, like it doesn't have to look like some amazing comic art. It doesn't have to look like the best manga you've ever seen, like just you can draw a stick figure. And like, people can figure it out. Like it's very easy to understand. And I feel like there've been things, you know, there've been web comics like dinosaur comics or like, um, you know, things like that where just like, it's even static images with different text and people figure out the meaning very easily and they're able to express themselves very well. But I think there's a real difference where people, and you probably encountered this too as an author, 
I feel like everyone feels like they can write on some level. I mean, to there's obviously exceptions. There are people who feel like, oh, I can never do that. But I feel like you encounter enough people at parties like, oh, you're an author. I would I would love to write a book if I had the time. Like it's just like a matter of their busy schedule, not <laughs> not uh, anything else that keeps them from writing a novel. Whereas a lot of people will be like, oh, I can never draw. Like, uh, and when I would do kids workshops, it'd be the same. Like you, I would always feel bad if I was there with an author and I was an author slash illustrator because the author could like, you know, talk about writing, read the most beautiful sentence ever written. And most kids would be like, okay. Like they just sort of like taking very little out of that. And you draw like a crude cartoon of a dog on a chalkboard and you like blow kids' minds because they feel like it's magic. Um, so I feel like there's still, and I don't know if it's like just something they learn from, I feel like it starts with kids and it becomes, it gets like pathological as you become an adult where you just feel like, I can't draw. You know, like you don't have to draw, like everyone can draw, right? Like some can draw better than others, but everyone can draw, for the most part, you can draw stuff that people understand. That's what the whole, you know, idea behind mm. Pictionary is, is like everyone can draw simple enough sketch that most people are like okay I know what that is but I think for a lot of people they're like it's not good enough even if they're just doing it for themselves even if it's like their own journal that they never want to see published they get really embarrassed about their lack of skill in drawing and it's really unfortunate because yeah like I guess like Joe was saying like it's such a natural way for so many people that you should be able to express feelings like very quick like the part of the problem with writing is it takes so long I would write these books and I'd be like, oh, I wish I could just draw, like, especially if it was like a complicated action. I'm like, I wish I could just draw this. It would take like right. one panel. <laughs> exactly. But instead I have to spend like three paragraphs explaining this complicated <laughs> motion. You're like, oh, can I just draw this part? Um, so it's very, um, yeah, it's unfortunate that I think there's still a lot of like hangups people have about their own abilities. Whereas, I don't know, you don't have to. And I feel like, I don't know. I think as you get older, you realize like the best comics are not the best drawn ones. Like some of mm -hmm. the best crafts or what's the word I'm looking for? Like the most perfect line work, beautiful art that doesn't necessarily make for the best comics. Some of the best comics have very simple drawing, like, you know, stuff like, like um, mouse or fun home. They're, they're good drawings, but no one would say that's the best artwork I've ever seen but they might say it's the best comics they've ever seen because it doesn't have to be, it just has to tell a story. It doesn't have to be the most representational, the most beautiful artwork. That's why, that's why that confusion is, that's why I'm so confused about that, you know, that barrier to entry where, you know, it's not like kids will refuse to dance to music because they say like, well, I, I'll never be Mikhail Baryshnikov or I'll never be, Patrick Swayze. But I think at a certain you point know, they like, do. Like I feel like kids up to a certain point will dance, but like after a certain point, you a lot of kids you couldn't, you know, pay to dance. True. True. To music. Like I think there's I don't know what age it is, and I think it's maybe a different age for dance to drawing, but I feel like for whatever reason, people feel like they have to be good at something to do it. And I know I mean that's something I try to remember too, especially when I'm trying something new. Like I took dance classes a while ago. I'm trying to learn how to ice skate. Like, I feel like as an adult, you have to remember too, you're like, you don't have to be good at something to do it or to enjoy it, right? And I mean, part of the joy of comic books is like, I don't know, most people don't. I mean, there are obviously exceptions, but a lot of the best comics is people don't know how to draw a lot of stuff, but 
I don't know. <laughs> you still get a great story and great storytelling out of it. Well, speaking of trying something new, you did shift a little over a decade ago to start writing these this YA series, The Dead Kid Detective Agency. Can you say very quickly about why you made that shift or how that shift happened? Was it, for example, was it originally conceived of as like a graphic novel or was it always going to be very much uh, a writing project? No, I mean, it was always going to be a writing project. Um, I never planned for it to be a comic. And I, I think part of what I was thinking was I would kind of do, I don't know where I thought I would have all this time, but I thought I would like <laughs> be simultaneously writing these kids books and making comics at the same time and as someone who now works in children's publishing i have to clarify their middle grade novels not ya my so it's like the next level down. no 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 there's no reason here no but yeah they're so they're next level down they're like nine to twelve um but i feel like when i was came up with this series i kind of i feel like i'm or less now but i used to always have a bunch of concepts that i was like one day I'll get around to making this into something. And this was always one that was in the back of my mind about, um, I don't know, I feel like I've always been obsessed with death in some way. And this was one such way. So I always had the idea of like, kind of like a teen detective. I always like growing up, I read the Hardy Boys. I read Nancy Drew. I really liked um, John Belair's was a, a really great kids author right. who wrote these sort of mysteries that a supernatural element so and you know scooby-doo the stuff like that all that stuff really i loved and then when i got older i really loved the show veronica mars which is sort of like this great tv noir about a teen detective so it's like how can i combine these things i liked so it was always the idea of having this girl who was a detective and had friends who were a bunch of ghosts who you know, using their um, abilities as ghosts to be, you know, mostly unseen and walk through walls and stuff like that, they could help her out and they could solve mysteries together. And then I was like, well, what if they were trying to solve their own mysteries? And what if we all learned a little bit about Canadian history while we read these books? So that was sort of the idea. But because it was so influenced by things like John Belair's and Nancy Drew and stuff like that, I always had in mind that it was going to be a book and a book with like, you know, spot illustrations every few pages like those books had so that was always the idea behind it not to do a comic but I thought I still like comics a lot so I was hoping to kind of do both at the same time but at a certain point it became like oh there's a publisher who wants to publish these books and then these comics that no one but me wants to publish <laughs> so it's like oh maybe I started focusing more and more on my attention of the place where it's like oh someone's actually gonna you know put these in bookstores where people can buy them and things like that and put them in libraries so that kind of became more the focus as I got older I used to say this more often and it always seemed very um glib but I feel like it's true I uh, when the first came out with the idea of the book I was working at the literary press group which is a um, sales and marketing force for I'm not sure how many different Canadian owned presses they represent now at the time it was like 48 different small and medium sized indie presses and so I was doing marketing for them and every season you would get you know close to 50 catalogs of all their newest books and I would see the catalog and the book and then the author's smiling photo at the bottom and after a certain point I was just like see all their smiling faces and just like I've like I can write a book like I can write a book at least as good as this guy, right? Like it was very 
bite driven at a certain yeah. point. It's like, well, why am I not doing this? All these people, like 50 catalogs worth of people are, are writing books, getting them published. I'm sure I can do that. So I feel like it was also partially just like spite and, um, you know, maybe unearned confidence in my own abilities <laughs> uh, to do that. That was like as much an inspiration for writing the book as, you know, those other books I enjoyed as a kid. I know that feeling very well of seeing the catalogs <laughs> and going like that guy. <laughs> and I would even add there's the extra, uh, you know, feeling in your stomach when you see that name. And then like two or three years later, you're looking at catalogs again and you see that name again. Like they got yeah, another, another book. book? <laughs> yeah, it just makes you feel more like I, I got to get in on this. I got it. Like the world yeah. needs me because this this guy shouldn't be all getting all this attention. <laughs> And then you get involved in it and you realize like, oh, that guy wasn't getting any attention. Like we're, we're yeah, working yeah. in the same, like the same abandoned alleyway that, uh, <laughs> which, which kind of leads me to the, the awkward part of the conversation, which is to note that um, there were four uh, to date. There are four editions uh, uh, or four, I'm blanking on the term. There are four dead kids, yeah. detective books agencies. in the series. Books yeah. in the series, yes, four books in the series. Uh, the first was two, 2011, the second was 2013, then 2015, and then 2018, and it is now 2023. So that 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 is. gap <laughs> is what we have. We need to talk about. Are first of all, are there plans for a fifth uh, in the series? And you know, it, yeah. if so, or if not, why, what happened with that gap? And you can't just say pandemic. You can't just say we had a worldwide pandemic. So the ideas of the series would be seven books in total. Um, so in theory, there are three more books in the series. Obviously, the fifth one has not come out yet. The fifth one exists. Like it's, there's a full manuscript that um, people generally don't like. Um, but it does. When, sorry, when you so, say when you say people, you're saying people at your publishing house or people like in your head. Who are no, the people no, who generally publishing? I think it's fine, but then I'm okay. I'm very easy on myself as far as editing. So, um, yeah. So there's, I mean, it's there are a couple of reasons. Like one, I had a I had a kid, and obviously that combined with I work full time. So the kid and working full time made a lot of my free time kind of disappear, and so it's been a struggle to find time to write those books as it always is. Um, but also, I mean, uh, so ECW publishes the books and I don't think they mind me saying here that, I mean, part of the struggle with the series is, and I did, I learned this after the fact, after I put out the first book is that usually with books in a series, authors very wisely have like at least two or three in the can before, by the time the first one comes out so that you're not waiting, you know, two years uh, at a time as you, people were initially um, for the next book, especially with kids series, because, you know, if you have a 11 year old reader, if they read that first book and enjoyed it, by the time the third and fourth book came out, they're like, they're adults now, they're in university, sometimes right. they're, you know, they have kids of their own, are they still interested in reading this series? So a lot of times it was like, with every new book came out, it was people buying the first book and like, Hopefully they would get to the later books, but it was always like every time it was like reintroducing the series with every new book because your initial audience had started to age out of that, that age range. And so it was kind of decided as like, why don't we get 
the, the final three books in the can and like kind of released so that we have like three manuscripts. By the time we have like three manuscripts in that we're kind of happy with, we can put them out like every six months and just have like the whole series out. So we're not having this big age or sorry, big year gap um, between each book. And so that's been the plan, but um, obviously we have to get those books done first. So obviously that means more time between book four and book five, because you're writing three manuscripts at once. And also there've been, um, yeah. The So I did finish the fifth book kind of in the height of the pandemic. I, I mean, initially, like most people, I found it impossible to do anything that required any level of focus, um, but then, I don't know, at a certain point, I was like, okay, let's just, I've got all this time now, let's just do this. So I really kind of like banged out a fifth manuscript. I worked on it, edited it, and I was kind of happy with it. And I submitted it and um, the publisher said, you know, it's really dark, like it's too dark. And so oh. these are books about dead kids. It's called The Dead Kid Detective. And so I'm like, oh, is it too, like, they're about <laughs> dead kids. How can it be too dark? But right. it felt the plot of the fifth and was like, a step too far as far as um you know the mysteries and stuff went so I feel like that was a little while ago and I've been really struggling with how to revise it because it's the central mystery that they find too dark so instead of just like oh I gotta fix this section of it's like a full rewrite because you're writing an entirely new mystery and so it's been a real struggle to get that done so I am hoping to have like I have the next three books plotted out but that also will change a bit since the mystery in this one is too dark. So I don't know. I mean, we've talked about this before and I feel like, yeah. And you've suggested you should like just wait a while and just, then just resubmit it and see if they notice that you (laughs) haven't changed anything, (laughs) which is like always an idea, but I haven't, I haven't settled on that right yet. I've, I've, I learned that from an agent I worked at, which was, uh, you know, this idea that if your editor asks for 10 changes, you, you like, you find the five you can live with, the five minor ones you can live with, and you make those and you just hand it back. And then they're like, yeah, great. They they don't (laughs) even notice that you didn't make any of the other changes. You have actually talked about this idea of when you went to write your first middle grade book, Mm -hmm. my apologies, not a (laughs) YA book. When you wrote wrote the first uh, book in the series that you had, even though you knew a lot about that world, you knew a lot about children's publishing and children's books, you did things like you dropped in F-bombs. There was a, apparently there was a book that included some references to self-harm that your re- editor had to come back and go, no, you can't. Is that still, well, it sounds like that's still kind of you're working, even though you're working literally within children's publishing now, is that still something that you are doing where you're like, there's the brain that knows what what fits within this category and then there's my writer brain who's just like, I just think it would be cool if they talked about, you know, this issue that's really not going to work in the category. Uh, I don't know. Like, I, I am very aware of it, but I feel like also, I mean, part of it is, uh, I think, a push against that. I feel like not whatever. Like, I feel like whatever swearing in kids was, I understand not in the middle grade, not swearing. That makes sense to me. But I feel like a lot of the topics that sometimes are seen as taboo are things that kids are reading about and kids want to read about. Like, I think about the books I was reading that age. 
Um, I mean, when I was a kid, like YA was not really a category. You kind of just went from like Hardy Boys to Stephen King and Ray Bradbury or, and things like that. And so like people, I was like 11 and reading Stephen King novels. And obviously those things have very like dark and disturbing moments and, and things like that. So I'm always conscious that I feel like kids can handle this stuff and are are often seeking it out. Like kids love dark books and love scary books. And I think it's just a matter of me realizing when I'm being too glib about things and when I'm not like the books themselves are very kind of snarky. Like they have a, they have an arch narrator who is kind of commenting on, it kind of goes back and forth between this narrator who comments on the events in a kind of comical and sarcastic way, almost like a, I don't know, more modern, like a, like Lemony Snicket who is more aware of modern pop culture. And then October herself, the narrator who is like a goth 13 year old who obviously is, has like her own personality. And so I feel like those two things lead me to sometimes be a little less, more loose in like mentioning things like that are quite dark. And yeah, I feel like a lot of times I rely on an editor to tell me like, you know, this is a bit too far because I feel like that sometimes, that sometimes happens. Uh, when I'm writing, uh, but at the same time, I I try not to write, at least not like the early drafts with that kind of voice in my head that said like, you know, if you were, you know, reading this book as an editor, not that I edit the children's books, I, I do publicity for them, but I'm like, I'm aware of what things people think are appropriate and, and are not appropriate for certain age ranges, but I feel like I don't really include that when I'm writing early drafts, especially. Well, also you and I both grew up in an era where like pop culture was not as strict. There wasn't as much for kids. So kids mm -hmm. would just kind of grab adult things and consume them as if they were for kids. Yeah, yeah. For example, I, I recently rewatched um, Ghostbusters with my nine-year-old. Oh yeah. It's Did so not get adult. all the way through it. We had to, we had to bail. <laughs> <laughs> uh and i had actually forgotten that there's like there is a blowjob scene yeah. <laughs> early on and one of the main plot points is that rick moranis and sigourney weaver get possessed and then have sex that's yeah. that's where the movie was going and i was thinking like i loved this movie when i was like eight or nine like i was obsessed with this movie how did i not notice that this was the whole movie and in fact my nine-year-old who you know will get spooked easily sometimes was fine with the ghosts fine with all the demons yeah. fine with the possession where he bailed and where he said i i gotta i can't watch this was when sigourney weaver tried to seduce bill murray <laughs> and literally oh, <yeah>. says <laughs> literally says i want you inside me and i have no like that yeah. was just whatever was in his brain was like nope not for me i got this is this is just getting weird and adult so i think probably we are also both corrupted our imaginations are corrupted in that way of like yeah throw anything at a kid we saw dan Aykroyd get a blowjob when we were nine throw that at a kid yeah from a ghost yeah from i mean ghost. i feel like there's definitely an element of that I, I think there's also less there was less supervision like i'm not i'm not going to suggest my parents were in any way negligent because they were very present in like all of my endeavors but i feel like there was a lot of thing where just like 
I think it's very different, like you watching Ghostbusters with your nine-year-old, and I'm sure a certain element of, of it was like their embarrassment sitting with their dad sure. while Sigourney Weaver talks about wanting Bill Murray inside her. Whereas I feel like uh, when I was a kid, my parents were like, here, watch Ghostbusters, stick the VCR <laughs> and then go do, do something else. So like, go, I go smoke that. and drink. and Yeah. 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 <laughs> but like, I wasn't, I probably didn't know what it meant the first several times I heard it. Uh, and even if I did, there was no sort of like cringe moment because my parents weren't right there. I could just like, whatever, take it in or ignore it because I was there with maybe my brother uh, right. watching it on her own. But I think even kids movies then were like, a fair like I I when I was a kid I loved Ghost or uh, Goonies and Goonies mm-hmm. is like I don't know no adult like there were no like thirty year olds in nineteen eighty five being like let's go see Goonies like or very few like it yeah. was for kids yeah but it opens with like a with a prison suicide and you're like oh that's a weird thing for like this movie for ostensibly eight year olds like I can't imagine that in the same way today. Um, so I feel like there was just a lot more sort of playing, like you said, a lot really loose with like, including adult stuff in movies that were largely marketed to kids, um, or at least crossover marketed to kids. Like I'm like Ghostbuster because of the actors in it were in it. Like it was an adult comedy, but they must've known by having like, you don't put Stay Puff Marshmallow Man and not expect kids to like watch your movie. Yeah. Or have that great logo, have the great cartoon logo, which right, like, yeah. that's, kids <laughs> kids are absolutely going to have that on a lunchbox or a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> so you say that the manuscript for the fifth book is done and it's it's being reconsidered or rethought. But I also was uh, reading something of a, an interview with you from about maybe about a decade ago where you talked about when you left Coach House and mm-hmm. you went to do a lot more like freelance, part-time Presumably yeah. that was to kind of focus more on writing and creating yeah, and yeah. drawing. Um, I do have to note that you are back in a full-time position, as you right. mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, you know, when I was looking up things for this for this interview, I noticed your your personal website is gone. It's yeah. it has lapsed. Um, are all those things connected? Did you go through a period where you just kind of like let the writing stuff go and and it like out of necessity obviously because of the job and because of having a child but was there a part of it where you're like maybe I'm letting it go in my head as well or was it always I'm coming back to it for sure I don't know I mean I feel like a part part of it was letting stuff go but I think also maybe it's become less important to me like I still enjoy writing I still want to put out these other dead kid detective agency books. I really like this series. I like the characters I've created in them and, and I want to sort of continue their adventures. But I feel like, I guess at a certain point, I thought like this was going to be what my life was. Like the I'll be, thing. This I'll is be an the author thing. Yeah. who sometimes does other stuff, but I'll be an author and I'll do this book and maybe some other books that related to that. And I think that just became less and less realistic um so I feel like yeah it became less of less important to my sense of self um I think also early on in that there was a period where I was like coach house the stuff I was doing there I feel like publicity is the kind of thing where if you're really 
um, dedicated to it and you're really interested and focused on doing a good job, you can really get yourself burned out quickly because there's always more stuff you can be doing for a book. It's not like, I mean, most jobs are like this, but they're never a, a certain point where you're like, okay, the publicity is done. Like there's always other stuff that you could be doing to promote a book or other avenues you could be exploring. So um, I think I had to sort of like get out of that cycle for a little bit. And I really wanted to focus on trying to make a go of writing. But then I kind of quickly realized that doing freelance, you end up working just as much or more mm -hmm. trying to sort of like match that kind of money that you can pay rent and for other necessities while you had to seek out all these various opportunities and then trying to write around that. And I also learned that, I don't know if it's like some kind of um, ancestral Protestant work ethic or something like that, but I felt very weird about like not like just sitting down to write without... Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a, a sort of, I don't know, reptile part of me that needs to go and like work somewhere for several hours at something else so that I can then like in my mind, writing and drawing is kind of like the dessert uh, that you like are allowed to do if you like do the eating your greens and right. other you have stuff to earn it. of it, know, it has to be earned. working for someone else. Yeah, it has to be earned. And it's like, I know it's like in my mind, I know it's a um, twisted and like uh, unhealthy relationship I have to work, but also I find it very hard to, I can like manage it, but I don't think I can like remove myself from that mentality in a very real way. So uh, a lot of it is sort of making peace with it and trying to like, make reasonable adjustments to that instead of just that sort of first year after coach where I was just trying to like, I'll just write. And it's like, no, I, I feel weird doing this. I need to like do, even if it's for like a smaller amount of time, I need to work at something else and then take a break and like work on this stuff. Because when I was just trying to sit down and write, it just wasn't happening. Like I just felt even within that time where I, where I had a lot of time to myself, I would have to alternate between like writing something and drawing something because just sitting and writing for, you know, five hours, it just, I couldn't do it. I needed to like take a break and do something, even if it was something else creative, I needed to work at something else. Have you had those moments where, again, where you're again, working in publicity, going through catalogs where you're starting to see names again, you're like, I got to be back in a catalog. I need to have my face next to that, next to that, you know, 150 word bio not really but you kind of feel I feel like there are moments where there's like stuff in in the I guess larger zeitgeist of like books that are coming you're like oh that book is like or you see books that come out and you're like oh that's sort of like my book but different and you're kind of like oh it'd be good to sort of be part of this you know with a new book and people could like match it up to this book or things or even like movies like I think of something like you know, TV shows like, um, what's it called? Like Julian, the Phantoms and things like that. Where you're like, oh, that's sort of like, not really, but like, I can see like their connections there. And you kind of regret not having a new book out that you could kind of do stuff connected to that with, or even, I don't know, even just, I feel like the books themselves are not horror. They're, they have horror elements, but they're kind of like supernatural mysteries. But I feel like there's also a real kind of, neat sort of renaissance in like Canadian books right now where there's like a real kind of horror 
movement like I think of yeah. like new books by like Ben Ruthnam and um Andrew Sullivan and I just feel like there's so many like really cool horror spooky books out there I mean mainly for adults but some some for kids as well and it's I don't know you kind of feel like oh it'd be cool to be like included in those lists or you know kind of you know invited to those type of events even like you know there's little ghost bookstore in Toronto which didn't exist like I don't know what four or five years ago mm-hmm. and it was like that's such a really cool space and it'd be nice to have your books there because they have a kid section at the back um you know even like yeah so I think there's more of that rather than I don't know I don't see as many catalogs as I used to so there's less of that regret it's more regret of like oh there's so many great books coming out by you know people I know or people I don't know that are kind of adjacent to what my series are and um it would just be fun to kind of be more part of it rather than, I mean, it's fun enough just reading them and enjoying the books, um, but it'd be fun to kind of be more part of that. And if those events happen, when you start getting invited to those events, when the books start reappearing, mm-hmm. more opportunities to be photographed in in great outfits exactly. and to be included in roundups. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I feel like there are less of fewer event photos at Quill and Choir now. Um, but yeah, there's Sadly. always opportunity photographed in bits, yeah. What Happened Next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones.